Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, and welcome to the Silmarillion Seminar. This is Mike Thurway, stylistic provocateur and proud Silmarillionaire. In this week's episode, we discuss Chapter 11 of the Sindar, or, meanwhile, back in Middle-earth. For your consideration in this chapter, have the Silmarillionaires discovered the lost lay of Beleriand, buried deep within the text? Perhaps, or perhaps not. You be the judge. We start tonight with a spoiler. Yes, listeners, fan or dies. Then we jump right into the cumbrous language of the dwarves. Enjoy! Okay, good evening, everybody. How you doing? Okay, so let's uh, jump right into doing... Uh to doing the chapter stuff. One thing I note uh, going through, let's see, John, you brought up um, Feanor's death. We should probably save that. Uh, the death of Feanor uh, isn't in this chapter. It's going to be a couple chapters down the road. We're, we're doing of the Sindar tonight. So I want to try. I was sort of reminded, Matt, I think it was you who uh, posted on Facebook this week, sort of reminding me that uh, this is your first time through the Silmarillion all the way. So, uh, uh, and I want to be sort of conscious of and sensitive to um, people who are reading it for the first time. So, uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want, I want to try to avoid jumping ahead too much. Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, see, Jordan is already worried that I'm giving away too much here, right? Feanor's going to die. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, um, so, you know, we can't avoid some things, but anyway, let's, let's sort of, let's save that till we get there. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So let's see. Okay. Um, I want to start. There were a couple of sort of comparatively simple, uh, word questions that were asked. Um, so I want to, let's start off with those. Mike, you had asked about the word cumbrous. Uh, that is a wonderful word. I absolutely, I absolutely love that sentence. How the, the language of the dwarves was to the elves cumbrous and unlovely. Um, Cumbrous is just an archaic form of the word cumbersome. Um, so they find it, they find it not attractive and very cumbersome to use. Uh, you may remember that, uh, Sam Gamgee calls, uh, you know, calls the dwarf language a fair jaw cracker. And that's, uh, uh, that's, uh, he's, I think, similarly commenting on its cumbrousness. Um, so that I think is, is, is what that means. Now, secondly, Mickelberg, uh, Matt asked about Mickelberg, which is the English translation, the, the you know, the, the Western, uh, translation of, uh, one of the dwarven cities. Mickel is, uh, from the old, uh, Anglo-Saxon word, which just means great or big. So Mickelberg just literally translates to big city, uh, basically, um, just like essentially, uh, you know, it's it's sort of the same thing, you know, Casa Doom, the Dwaro Delph, um, basically translates to like the dwarf city, you know, I mean, like the the place where lots of dwarves live, um, and you find this is actually true of a lot of. Tolkien's words, uh, you know, when he takes words from other languages, especially things like Anglo-Saxon and stuff, um, he will tend to use actually just very simple words and translate them because he loves the way that those words are in the other languages. You know, some of the classic examples, of course, are with the Rohirrim, when you have, uh, you know, the word Ederos, um, the, the, the capital city of the Rohirrim. Uh, Ederos just means buildings uh, in Anglo-Saxon. Um, and uh, Meduseld just means mead hall. I mean, it's like just means hall. It, it, it's a pretty simple description of what uh, 
of what the thing is. Um, but of course, the words sound really cool in Anglo-Saxon. And so b- b- basically, he's done the same thing with, with Mickelberg there. It just means big city. Um, but, uh, okay. So, uh, with those two sort of quicker things, um, sort of quicker things cleared up, let's, uh, oh wait, Matt, you wanted to, oh wait, hang on, I didn't turn on anybody's microphones. Hang on a second. Uh, Matt, you wanted to, uh, um, pitch in on the word question? Uh, yeah, I was actually quite interested in that word Mickelberg because it, it kind of leapt out at me. It didn't, doesn't seem very elvish. Um, and um, I started doing a little research this afternoon, and I found that you know uh, Mickelberg is a Scottish, Scottish, uh, you know, most most recently is Scottish, and it means great fortress. And the uh, berg can be traced back to uh, Scottish, and before that to German berg, and uh, Burgess from the Latin, and they mean uh, um, fortress. And Mickel means a great amount Scottish, um, but you know. Belagost is the Sindarin word for um, for the um, dwarven city Gabalgothel. I hope I pronounced that right. It yeah, just it, seems kind of odd that uh, that uh, it's translated into Scottish. Uh, well, you know, you know Belagost sounds elvish, but Scottish just kind of, I mean, you know, Mickelberg just kind of sticks out. Right. Well, Mickelberg is in basically it's in English, um, but yeah, it. it it is basically it it comes up as Scottish when you look it up uh because Mickle is a is an archaic uh form of an English word um but it's still used in Scotland or or more more recently used in Scotland than in England um uh the word Mickle used to be just used just sort of like that as an adjective you know like in a you know in a uh, a middle english poem you might say something like you know he smote him with mickle might uh meaning with with great strength with great power so um so yeah i mean i think that it's uh uh so so i, I think that's why it's coming up as scottish because it, it's sort of an archaic uh term but no when, when he when we get three different translations like that like we do of the uh uh of the names of of the dwarf cities um you know what we're getting it we're getting it in uh in in elvish in cinderin um which is what nagrod and belagost those are the cinderin names for them and then we get them uh we get them in in uh in in dwarvish those are the ones you can tell those because they're the ones that are cumbrous and and unlovely gabalgathol and tumunzahar uh so and then, and then we get what is basically a literal translation of those, Mickelberg and Hollowbold. And although neither one of those sound like modern English exactly, they are English, both of them. Um, but just with archaic, um, archaic, uh, uh, parts, Mickel and Bold, both of which, uh, are just essentially, as I said, archaic modern English. So, uh, it, Jack has just mentioned, is it related to Mickle Delving? Yes, absolutely. Mickle Delving just means like the big dig, <laughs> basically, uh, the big holes. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Huh? Thought that I thought the big dig was in Boston. Well, yeah. See, I, I'm from New Hampshire, so it's the first thing that I think of too. And I, it's actually uh, you can make yourself feel better about the big dig if you call it, if you think of it as Mickle delving. Um, it's not much like Mickle delving, it seems. I think, but anyway, it, it certainly cost more. But, um, but anyway, yeah, <laughs> literally, that's what it. Uh, that's that's sort of what Mickle delving would translate to. Um, well, so, go, go ahead. 
I just wondered also, I mean, I, we know that Tolkien loved language. Is there any chance, I mean, um, Christopher Tolkien was taking these drafts and producing a final final product. Is there any chance that Tolkien just threw in some of these things because he, he loved language, he loved the way it sounded. Christopher may have accidentally, you know, put them in the final draft. So just... I don't think so. I mean, because we see this kind of thing in other places. That is it particularly, I mean, the other, the other place that, uh, um, that comes to mind is when we're the, the the scene which prompts Sam to observe that the dwarf language must be a fair jawcracker, and that's um, when Gimli introduces the three mountains above Casa Doom, and he gives you know he gives for them all three of their names. That is, each one has three names. He gives the name in Dwarvish, and he gives the name in El in Sindarin, and he gives the name uh, in in common. That's why uh, Karathras, for instance. Um, is that's the elvish name uh redhorn you know when you hear it when when you hear the redhorn gate referred to that's just the common translation the the westron translation um of karathras so um so yeah so so that's actually a, a, a common kind of motif we don't get that many dwarvish names uh place names um and what when we do we often get these uh we often get these multiple translations and stuff. So I don't think it's an accident. Um, I don't think it's an accident okay. or a mistake. Um, but, uh, but it certainly is an instance. I mean, that whole paragraph, um, you know, the second full paragraph of the chapter is a pretty significant linguistic indulgence. You know, <laughs> when we're getting, we get all of these different names for things. Um, but it's also actually fun. You can begin to see, if you pay attention, you can begin to work out um, some, you can pick up some Sindarin. I mean, he's so careful about giving translations of things. And when he gives translations, it's uh, it's usually a pretty direct translation. Um, so you can see, for instance, if just looking at that paragraph, the Blue Mountains of Eridluin into Beleriand. So Eridluin means Blue Mountains. Erid, as we will see, means mountains. So you know, you've got the 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 Arid Mithrim and the uh, uh, lots of Arid things, and that just means mountain. And Luin means blue. So we can kind of hold on to that, and then we get uh, Gonhirim, Masters of Stone. Well, we've seen Hirim before, right? Um, from Rohirrim, and what does Rohirrim mean? What are these? What are those people being called when the when the when the people from Gondor give them the Elvish name Rohirrim? There you go. Exactly. I was seeing the frantic typing. Yes, yes. Horse lords. That's they're 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 called the horse lords. So you see the uh, the 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 horse root with the Hiram root. Uh, Gon Hiram means masters of stone. So Gon, you can see, means stone, which helps us then to see that uh, the land of Gondor has that root also. So you see Gondor is the land of stone. Uh, and just as Mordor is the land of shadow or the black land. Um, so anyway, as I said, if you if you pay attention to this and you look, any time you get a side-by-side translation like that, it's usually, um, very often anyway, a quite literal translation. Um, and so you can begin to sort of pick up some some roots and bits um, of uh, of of Sindarin. Oh, and by the way, I love the I love the Elvish name of Khazad-dûm. That is before they gave it the name Moria. Hathadrond is is uh, is just a wonderful name, I think. Um, so uh so anyway yeah there's uh there's there's a lot of cool stuff we can do now unfortunately we can't really do much of the same with dwarvish because we get so few of the words that uh we don't 
really get a chance to to see the patterns quite so much. They just aren't. Because they didn't teach it to anybody. Right, exactly. And it's one of the reasons why we don't have it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I forget the number, uh, the, the total number of actual words in Dwarvish which are attested in all of Tolkien's writings put together. But it's very small. It's like 20 or 30 or something like that. I mean, it's very small. Um, so, uh, so yeah, because the only thing we get are the few bits that we overhear, uh, like Gimli's war cry and these few names and well, things like and that. Place names and, and you know. Right, 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 exactly, and not even all that many of those. So, um, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's that one's that one's much harder. But but Cinderin, Cinderin, we can we can we can begin to do something with, um, if we pay attention. Um, okay. So, I, I, I oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Tolkien would be glad that we're discussing the philology of all this. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. Though, of course, I am such a poor philologist uh, that, uh, you know, I, I, I am at least as much of an amateur as anybody else in talking about these things. But, uh, uh, but I am very interested in it, and I find, I find it really fascinating. It's one of the things... Uh, one of the things I find myself interested in and focusing on more and more um, as I read. But anyway, okay. Um, uh, Jack, let's go on. You wanted to uh, talk about uh, the density of the chapter. I think that's a that's a fine place to begin. Yeah, it occurred to me that um, you know almost any one of these chapters could be like a synopsis or book a book proposal, something that. Tolkien would take to a publisher and say, hey, I want to write a, an epic book about this. <laughs> and the publisher would say, okay, well, this looks like seven, eight, nine hundred pages. Uh, go ahead. Because in this, in this one alone, we have, you know, you know, the meeting of the elves and the dwarves and, and the reunion of the elves with the other elves. And we have a, a building of a great city and a war um, and so much, so many other things. And the same with the other chapters, like with Feanor, just the making of the Silmarils could have been a, that's a novel I'd like to read. And I think earlier we were talking about um, some of the obstacles of getting into the, of reading the Silmarillion the first time is all the people, all the names. And another one is just how much is going on in every chapter. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that's a really great observation. Uh, it's really true. There are so many times, and then there's, there, th- there will be moments where it's not even a whole chapter. It's just like one little bit. I mean, think of what a great story The Crossing of the Hell Caraxa by Fingolfin and the, and, and the rest of the Noldor could be. I mean, that's, could be, could be, a, you know, a, a, a great, uh, piece of heroic poetry in itself. Um, you know, and this is, uh, I think very typical of the Silmarillion, and you're right. It has this kind of density in a good way. That is, it it is very compact, um, and uh, and I think this is especially true. You can see when you go back when you go back to the Book of Lost Tales and read the original. Uh, the Silmarillion version is almost always much shorter uh, than any version of the stories that we get in the original. And he, uh, you know, as time went by he kind of cut things down um and we do have this sort of here is all of this great history kind of collapsed and one of the things that i find so remarkable about it is that it rarely at least i think it rarely feels like a mere synopsis like i'm just reading an abstract here instead of uh instead of reading an actual story uh the 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 story that he tells sort of from the distance that he tells it um you know in order to sort of scan all of these events at one time is still a really compelling story um but uh but yet we we get these 
you know, these glimpses of things and these, these stories, which, which would be so, I mean, think of that, the battle, uh, the battle where Kierd in the shipwright and, and Thingol and the armies of, of Doriath catch the great orc host in between and, and rout them there on the plane. I mean, that, that would be a, that would be a great story. Um, you know, the last, the, the last stand of, uh, of, of Denethor, the lord of the Nandor, um, on the mountain, you know, where he is overtaken and killed. I mean, uh, it's really, uh, it's, it's, there's so much stuff there. And, you know, one thing is, of course, this is, this, this is what he was doing, basically. That is, he was, he did choose several of these stories and was writing long, longer versions of them, you know, that this was never intended to be the whole thing. And that's why we get the Lays of Beleriand, right? Where you get these full, long, epic poem length, um, or at least, abortive he he didn't finish them needless to say but um these epic epic poetry length versions of the story of baron and luthien and the story of of turin turambar and he wanted to do the same thing with the story of earendil and he uh, he he told a longer version of the fall of gondolin and you know there are all these all these moments in the story where he has kind of zoomed in and you sort of get the impression that he would have loved to do even more of those things um but uh but yeah i mean you absolutely could you absolutely could do that i think it's uh um it's it's there's just a lot going on there dave you wanted to add to this yes i would all right um i'm kind of anticipating i'm anticipating next week a little bit so i'll try not to do too much of that but <clears throat> i wanted to offer sort of a an alternative um um theory on sort of why some of these chapters are so dense um in particular i noticed the last couple of chapters there've been a lot of references to this being the noontime of Valinor, um, and it's sort of, I, I, I might be misinterpreting time, but I feel like this book sort of spends, glosses over the early events and skips over thousands and thousands of years, and then the, va- the bulk of the book focuses on very short periods of time um, and very specific events. Uh, and in the beginning of next chapter, he sort of discusses this a little bit and just kind of points out that, oh, the, the Cinder, Cinderin didn't keep a lot of records um, right. about the early days and stuff. Uh, because, um, well, you know, when things are blissful, no one really takes much thought about writing down, uh, you know, trying to preserve the memory of those things. And it's not until um, uh, it starts looking like those things might be endangered that people start scrambling to try and preserve them or preserve memories of them. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, so I don't want to, maybe we should put this off until next week or at least an in-depth discussion of it. But I, I would just like to highlight that it's really interesting that we just skate over thousands and thousands of years in these chapters. We're like, well, you know, they founded this giant kingdom of, um, of Menegroth, which is at the center of almost everything that happens the rest of the book. And, you know, well, yep, established. Great. <laughs> Moving on to the next chapter. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, it, it is interesting because you think there's an epic tale, but, but, um, but you know, I wonder if also it's sort of, it's, truth matter is, the founding of it's not nearly as interesting as uh, when it falls apart. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and that is, though that follows again in the same, uh, in the same mode of the passage that you refer to. And actually that passage is in this chapter because it's, it's, it's oh. in the, it's in the place where, where Dayaron invents his runes, his runes and the yes, dwarves love it, them, but, it, but it, they don't they, catch on among the Sindar. The, yeah, where they say that the dwarves were much more impressed by what he did than his own people. Yes, yes. His own people are like, well, what are we going to use these for? <laughs> right, exactly. Writing? Please Why should we write anything time. down when we're all immortal and we remember things really well? <laughs> like, what's the point? Um, 
Yes. Well, of course, the point is that many of you are going to be killed, and many of these things are going to pass away, and uh, maybe we should maybe we should write them down. Um, yeah, yeah. But but I agree. I mean, that's that's something that we see. Um, quite frequently. You know, we're going to spend much more time looking at the fall and destruction of things than at either the building or at at the the existence of them. But of course, I mean, this goes back also. Remember he's he says almost exactly the same thing in the hobbit, right? You know, at the end at the end of the you know, right after they they stay in Rivendell and in he has that that uh that sentence where he is talking about here instead of uh instead of misquoting it from memory. Uh let me look it up because it's easy to find. Um Is it beginning or end? I'm gonna try to beat you to it. Yeah. No, it is the end of the short rest chapter. Or maybe it's the middle after no, it's the middle of it. Okay. Now it is a strange thing, but things that are good to have and days that are good to spend are soon told about, and not much to listen to, while things that are uncomfortable, palpitating, and even gruesome may make a good tale, and take a deal of telling anyway. Um, and that's sort of in, uh, in juvenile Hobbit language, uh, that is the Hobbit book, um, that's almost exactly the same principle that he describes here in this chapter in the Silmarillion. Um, and uh, uh and, and i think that that's sort of a principle that, that that you can see but it is true that we are reminded and it's and when we should remember that we are getting ages of blessedness going by um and we should not overlook the fact that uh you know they have been blessed for ages and and everything has been happy um and Dave, I think you mentioned always, briefly a question about the whole ages question, but anyway, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 I was no. Just say, it always strikes me as weird. It, it always hits me weird when I'm reading these chapters and like, and and we're in the noon time of Valinor. I'm like, already? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Because this enormous amount of time has passed um, that we've more or less skipped over. Um, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, the amount of time that has gone by has been, it must have been tremendous. I mean, it must have been thousands and thousands of years that the elves were living over in Valinor, or that the Noldor were in Valinor, that is. Uh, I mean, thousands of years. And 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 this is in the next chapter, but um, they start talking about uh, that that sort of we've already begun the fading of the elves, and that they're already anticipating men and, and the time of men. And you're like, <laughs> we haven't even met them yet. Uh, and I thought this was this is this book sort of pitched as oh all the the elvish backstory, but but really we barely even read anything about the the, the sort of the time of the elves when they're in charge because we just sort of skip over that. Right. 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 Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we, we do, well, we, 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 we go right to the, to the gruesome and palpitating parts, uh, which tend to cluster around the fading time. Uh, and when, when, when things, uh, when things, well, I was going to say when things become worthy of tales, but of course that's not the point, right? It's that the beautiful things only be, only get put into song after they've passed away. So, you know, from now on, we're going to be making songs about the trees. But why sing, you know, why sing detailed songs about the trees when you can just go and sit under the trees? Um, so, I, so but, but, but yeah, now, now we're going to be looking back on them. Those songs we're not going to hear. We're going to hear the descriptions of the, of the fall and the lamentation. But, uh, and there will be plenty of falling and there will be plenty of lamentation <laughs> through the rest of the book. Um, but yes, yes, we're already past the noontime uh, of Valinor. We're uh, we're 
we're good. <laughs> we're good. Um, and now we're already going, we're going to be moving into the evening. And this is, uh, um, yeah, but it is, it is something just to kind of keep in mind, um, that there is so much time that has passed quickly, uh, in, especially in this chapter where we're going back and catching up on what we've missed over in Middle Earth. Uh, Laura, go ahead. Too, that, uh, with this style of, of writing he's using, <clears throat> he's not really, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he's not really developing the characters or providing the kind of atmosphere that he did in The Lord of the Rings. And I think that's the other reason why you read it and, you know, it talks about the passage of the Helcaraxa, for instance. And you think, boy, that was fast. You couldn't have expanded on that a little more. So it, it, it's a different style in the Silmarillion, too, that things are these big events are going to seem like they go by very quickly because we don't get them from a character's perspective. We don't um, have kind of that atmospheric buildup. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that there we get the, sort of the difference between um, like an orally related history and, you know, a book written by eyewitnesses. Remember the premise of The Lord of the Rings is that it is the recollection of you know, Frodo and the other hobbits involved, and they write it in a big book. Um, and it's supposed to be, you know, a first-hand account or, you know, close eyewitness accounts. Um, so it's much closer to the action, and they're trying to preserve the real story of what happened um, and the things that they saw and the things that the little people did. Here, what we're getting is sort of elven records and elven stories. And this is clearly like the synopsis version, as we can tell, because we get these several references along the way to these other versions, right? And the full version of this story is told, like, re remember the full version of the, um, of the kinslaying is told in that song written by Maglor, right? Um, so, um, so, and we'll see, we'll see, you know, several references to things like that as we go uh, the way through. Um, but those aren't the songs that we're listening to. What we're listening to is this, is this sort of big chronology, but it is like an orally recited history. And it does not, as you say, Laura, it does not come in close to characters by and large. You know, we're not going to get a lot of character development. There will be moments when we will zoom in a little bit. Um, there are moments when we will, actually kind of come down nearer to characters and we will see some of these characters develop over time. Thingol, for instance, will develop over time. Um, certainly when we sort of zoom in and we get the story of Baron and Luthien and we get the story of Turin Turambar, we will follow these characters for a little bit longer and see more of them. But most of them we won't exactly. Hurin, he's another character who's gonna, who's gonna develop. Um, as the story goes on. But, um, but by and large, it's certainly, it, it's never going to feel like the Lord of the Rings. And again, he's, he's trying to achieve a different tone. He's trying to, I mean, this is just a different, a different kind of story, an entirely different register of story. And, and I think he does a really, um, a really good job of, 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 of capturing that. And, and it's, and, and, and it's pretty consistent, I think. Um, yeah, I agree, Chris. Uh, Finrod Felgund is, is another one that's gonna, um, that's gonna be, uh, developing a good deal. Um, however, uh, um, Laura has brought up the style of the chapter, which means it's time for style time with Mike Thurway. So, uh, Mike, go ahead. What, what uh, I know you wanted to, to mention something about poetry, I think. Well, I, I'm right at that same 
uh, paragraph that you were talking about and comparing uh, what's what what we hear about uh, Rivendell and Elrond in The Hobbit versus the the sentence that reads, uh, "When things are in peril or broken, forever do they ever pass into song." And then there's that following lengthy paragraph of sort of the perfection of Beleriand. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if I'm misreading this or not. But the the upper sentence ends pass into song. And then as I was reading that following paragraph, it seems to be structured somewhat uh, like a song. There are three sentences that all start with in Beleriand, and two of them are almost are, are very similar. The first sentence starts in Beleriand, and then it seems like there are almost two stanzas separated by semicolons. The elves walk, the river flows, the stars shine. Um, there's a semicolon, and there's a description of the beauty of Melia, uh, Melian and, and Luthien. And then there's a second repetition of in Beleriand, and then there's the statements about Thingol, whose power, whose joy, whose thought. And then there's the final echoing of in Beleriand. And then you're back to those two stanzas again. Or I'm calling them stanzas, where there's a longer phrase, a semicolon, and then a shorter phrase at the end. And I'm wondering if when when he wrote this and he said, you know, sometimes the only times things pass into song is when things are about to break apart. And then we've got this paragraph, which seems like it's got the structure of kind of like a song or a free verse poem. Am, am I reading too much into that? Am I off the mark? What do you think? I think that is completely freaking brilliant. Uh, I think you are absolutely on. That is amazing. You were totally right. I never noticed that before. But the Inbalarian repetition all three times, uh, and each one, each sentence that is, is almost the same length. And it certainly is uh segue into into a really kind of unusually poetic description. If you think about it, even thinking about it in the terms we've been discussing this chapter, uh, just recently about how, how sort of condensed it is and how, um, sort of how far above the surface of the plot we're flying in this sort of brief synopsis. But yet at this moment we pause to say in Beleriand in those days the elves walked and the rivers flowed. Now that's hardly exactly advancing the plot of this story, right? The elves walked around. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. But we get, yeah, in Beleriand in those days the elves walked and the rivers flowed and the stars shone and the night flowers gave forth their scents and the beauty of Melian was as the noon and the beauty of Luthien was as the dawn in spring. In Beleriand King Thingol upon his throne was as the lords of the Maiar whose power is at rest, whose joy is as an air that they breathe in all their days, whose thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. In Beleriand still at times rode Orome the Great, passing like a wind over the mountains, and the sound of his horn came down the leagues of the starlight, and the elves feared him for the f- and the elves feared him for the splendor of his countenance, and the great noise of the onrush of Nehar, and when the Valaroma echoed in the hills they knew well that all evil things were fled away. Um that is fantastic. And could be because of course if we just had that paragraph in the middle, we I would be tempted to be like, well, you know, maybe that's kind of, you know, he's sort of indulging himself in, uh, in, in, in a little bit of poetic description here. This is one way, of course, to do in a condensed paragraph. Um, here, let me, encau- let me encapsulate 10,000 years of happiness for you, um, you know, in some sort of elevated poetic language. But of course, Mike, you're right. It's way too conspicuous having just said, um, 
you know, only when they are in peril or broken forever do they pass into song. So these days we're talking about are, you know, those days which were wonderful and, you know, which were fair and wonderful and which nobody really paid attention to. But um, pretty soon we're going into them being in peril or broken forever. Uh, and now we're going to pay attention to uh, we're going to pay attention to the. Uh, um, yeah, now, now we're gonna we're gonna pay attention to that beauty and give you a little snippet of song. That is fantastic. Absolutely love that. And this has been Style Time with Mike Thurway. Excellently done. That's fantastic. Um, great, great. Okay, I love Style Time. Okay, um, let's uh, <laughs> see. Uh, Mac feels the same way. Um, now. Let's 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 move on. See, Dave, I think you wanted to talk about that. We, we've made several references to to ages, to the, to the you know the ages that have passed and the three ages of Melkor's imprisonment. And I think, Dave, you wanted to, to ask a question about that. Yeah, <clears throat> I guess this kind of dovetails with our previous discussion about time passing, but um, this is more of a clarification question for beginners. Um, they talk about ages of Melkor's um, chaining, and uh, when we talk about Tolkien, we also talk about uh, different ages, the first age, the second age, the third age. seems like he uses the word age a lot in a lot of different contexts to mean different things, so maybe a little clarification on uh, which ages mean what. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's a really hard one to answer. Um, as you say, the, the, the most available model that we have is, you know, the first age, the second age, and the third age of Middle Earth, um, as they are discussed. And there, what we see are, in general, sort of discrete sections of time which are divided by sort of major epic dividing events, right? So, the first age of the world comes to an end at the War of Wrath, at the end of the Silmarillion, and at the final overthrow of Morgoth. Spoiler alert. And um, then the second age uh, comes to an end at the overthrow of, of Sauron and the taking of the ring from his finger by the Last Alliance. And then... The third age, of course, ends with the destruction of the ring and the down, and the final downfall of Sauron. So, um, so we have, that's, that's how we're sort of taught to conceive of ages. And so it's very natural coming from the Lord of the Rings to the Silmarillion to, um, to sort of assume that ages mean that. But the problem is we don't have any indication of what the events are. Like we're told that Melkor is chained for three ages and then he's released, but we have no, we're given absolutely no way to guess how those ages are divided or how, how anybody knows like, okay, we're like three quarters of the way through the third age of Melkor's imprisonment. Um, we just flat don't get that information. So is it possible that there is like, you know, there are some kind of discrete epochs there? Is that, is that, or is it simply that, um, uh, those are supposed to be units of time, you know, something like probably not centuries, millennia. I don't know what, I don't know how many years go into a, how many years of the trees went into an age there. Um, so yeah, Laura, um, Laura comments in the text that she says, "I wonder what happened to divide up the ages." And I was wondering the same thing. It's there. Obviously, something was going on. There seems to be an untold story by which they delineate things. Um, so that makes um, you right, un what they're missing. unless it's simply an account of time. That because you know right. we're told that the count of time begins with the trees, so it is possible that it's a purely quantitative measure in some sense. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Is it is it somehow related to the trees? I would think so. I would think so because now I mean, we're I, we're I, I, we're at least counting days now with the trees. 
Um, and so there clearly is now a system, and they say this is the beginning of the count of time. So it seems quite, quite, quite likely, quite, quite probable, um, that since they are counting time, that perhaps ages in the sense of you're going to be, you know, imprisoned for three ages simply is a mere quantitative measure and not marked by, um, by epoch breaking events in the ways that the others were. And this actually is sort of even, I think, the more suggested by the fact that the first age of Middle Earth is essentially like from creation up to the downfall of Morgoth. I mean, everything in there is kind of thrown into the first age, you know, which is sort of called collectively the elder days. And, um, so that I think, I mean, surely, there are many things that we see in the Silmarillion. I mean, between between the music of the Ainur and the end of the Silmarillion, there are a lot of points which seem at least as significant, say, as the overthrow of Sauron by the Last Alliance. Um, what about the the overthrow of the lamps by 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 Melkor? You know, near the beginning, surely that was a major epic marking thing, right? But we don't have any kind of indication there. Well, they hadn't started counting time yet then. Um, Anyway, I mean, the, the, there are lots of things you can, I mean, surely, like, I get the darkening of Valinor, hello? I mean, that seems like that would be a major epic marking thing. Um, but it's not. The capture of Melkor, surely the capture of Melkor is at least as significant, uh, as the, the, the overthrow of Sauron by the Last Alliance, but it doesn't end an age officially. Um, so, so I think that it's hard to trace it, to see the ages as they are discussed, um, in the Silmarillion meaning quite what it comes to mean later on. Um, they seem yeah, to start seems, thinking about ages differently. It seems like the later meanings of ages have something to do with sort of less, less in terms of absolute significance or magnitude of events, but rather rather their, their relationship to how Middle-earth changes um, uh, and, and, and how, how um, dominance tra- sort of transfers from the elves to sort of the, el- the men of Numenor to, you know, men, period. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, certainly the coming of men is something which is clearly viewed as, you know, sort of epoch-defining. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, but again, even that is not exactly talked about in the same way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so we certainly can, it seems perfectly fair to sort of subdivide, um, subdivide the first age subdivide the elder days in some ways which certainly make sense i mean the 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 time with the valar before the overthrow of the lamps the establishment of valinor the the time of the trees over there uh you know the time after the darkening the the return of the noldor um and the and the war with 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 morgoth i mean all of these are are the 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 time of the coming of men and the 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 interdwelling of the of the men and the elves in Beleriand, all of these things are clearly um, clearly sort of significantly differentiated moments, but that vocabulary that is the vocabulary of ages, um, like we see later on, just doesn't really seem yet to be used, um, which is what leads me to think that when we talk about ages that way, it's not. Uh, He's not using it in those terms, or the the people in the Silmarillion are not using it in those terms. So no, it's more ages with a small a. Not ages I think so. A. Yeah, yeah, ages with a small age. Yeah, that that that's a good way to think about it. But it is kind of it is kind of confusing or potentially confusing because we are so used to that um, vocabulary um, from from the Lord of the Rings. 
Um, okay, let's see. Uh, we have a couple dwarf uh, questions here, which I want to go to here. Let's start, uh, Laura, with uh, with you. Yeah, actually, this came up in a book group I'm in where we're reading The Hobbit, and somebody mentioned that uh, she had seen that Tolkien got his inspiration for dwarven culture from the Jewish culture, actually. And uh, she pointed me to the Wikipedia article, which has quite a bit to say about it. And she also said there were some things, some things in the letters, his letters. Uh, the only thing I found in his letters was something from 1955, where he says, I do think of the dwarves like Jews, at once native and alien in their habitations, speaking the languages of the country, but with an accent due to their own private tongue. And the Wikipedia article uh, references the history of the Hobbit yes. books, which I don't have, so I'm not sure what it says in there. But um, I thought that was uh, intriguing, actually, that he used uh, the Jews as sort of a, sort of a, I don't know, an ex a... Uh, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. A uh, inspiration, I guess. For, yeah, no, it's for true. Divorce. I mean, and how? Yeah, how much do you think that is true, and how much is uh, because he didn't invent dwarves. Dwarves were around right. in um, in European uh, tales long before Tolkien. Right. Exactly. I mean, and we see the um, the dwarves in the Hobbit all have. Oh, almost all of them have Norse names. That is, the names of almost all of the dwarves um, in um, in the Hobbit are from the uh, the Edda, um, the poetic Edda. So, um, so it's it's uh, he seems to be on the one hand simply, you know, sort of bringing in these dwarf figures from uh, from Norse from the Norse tradition, which of course he brought in a lot from the Norse tradition, um, where the where the dwarves, by the way, are usually bad guys. Um, one thing that Tolkien did um, with his dwarves, which was really quite unusual, was make them, uh, if not always and uniformly good guys, at least not villains, um, which they almost always were. And you can see this. This is even true. Um, this is even true in medieval romances. Sometimes dwarves will be, um, will be sort of kicking around in, in Arthurian romances and stuff as like, you know, servants and squires to, to, to knights, um, leading to one of my favorite incidents in Sir Thomas Mallory in the tale of Sir Gareth, when Sir Gareth is traveling around with a dwarf who then gets snatched and ridden off with by this enemy knight and Gareth goes pelting after him, uh, you know, demanding the return of his dwarf. Uh, it's, it's a very funny scene. But, um, anyway, but very often the dwarves, um, are are, when, when, when we get sort of a random dwarf, uh, which we get a bunch of random dwarves in medieval romances, they tend to be often malicious, um, at least kind of sketchy figures. So Tolkien does take, especially from the Hobbit perspective, um, does take his dwarves in a very different direction um, than that tradition. But uh, although it may seem so, uh, Laura, I am not dodging... Um, the 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 Jewish connection because that is true. Um, the the reference in the history to, in the history of the Hobbit. Um, uh, John Ratliff uh, in that book cites an interview. It was I think a radio. It was either radio or TV. I can't remember which interview which Tolkien did. It wasn't written. It was it was it was spoken, in which uh, Tolkien alluded to this and said that yes, uh, in part, dwarven culture was based on Jewish culture. And the thing that he emphasized in the in the interview 
was that even the warlike nature of the dwarves was modeled after uh was modeled after the Jews and he referenced he, that he was thinking here of 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 the Old Testament uh, and he says you know the 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 sort of the stereotypes and conceptions of 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 the Jews have changed over time but if you read the Old Testament you will see that they were actually a very warlike people um and uh so that's and and uh, uh John Ratliff sort of describes the interviewer who is talking to Tolkien at that moment appearing rather flustered and not knowing what to say <laughs> in response to that but um but anyway i one thing which is very clear is that the dwarven the the dwarvish language is based is essentially is 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 based on at least in part on Semitic languages. So linguistically, clearly, um, he is sort of thinking in those directions. Lord, go ahead. Yeah, and I, I think the Dwarvish calendar, too, is um, based on the Hebrew calendar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's there. I mean, one of the things... <sighs> so to me, the question is not necessarily was Tolkien really thinking that because he he did seem to be I mean he referred to it several times um the question i guess the the question to me is more what do we do with that if anything and i think my answer to that is kind of not much um that is it's kind of interesting but i'm not really exactly sure how significant at the end of the day it is i mean one thing that's kind of interesting about it to me is that um you know you sort of wouldn't guess that is if he's basing, um, if he's basing the dwarves in some sense, uh, you know, on some version of Jewish culture, he certainly is avoiding the majority of traditional stereotypes that built up about Jewish culture. I mean, one certainly can't accuse him of just sort of, uh, you know, slinging around sort of traditional anti-Semitic stereotypes. Um, because the depiction of the dwarves just, I, I, I don't think anyway, really appeals to any of those. Um, so that's kind of interesting, but, um, but no, I don't, I mean, in the end, I guess for me, I do the same thing with this that I do with almost all of the other things. That is whenever there's source stuff that Tolkien has taken and used, which is like, I find it interesting and I find it kind of curious, but at the end of the day, I don't find it necessarily helps in the way that it sort of seems like it should help. Um, uh, you know, and this is like, you know, back to, like, back to stuff that I talked about, you know, way back in my very, very first podcast episode ever, um, the How to Read Tolkien and Why episode, you know, that basically when you look at the source stuff, one is so tempted upon seeing it, upon seeing the connections and the stuff that inspired him and the stories that he's integrating and adapting and things like that, to feel like, okay, now, seeing that, I have gained this great insight into Tolkien's story. But actually, you don't necessarily gain a great insight. It's a curiosity. It's kind of interesting. It's fun to know about. Um, but it doesn't automatically provide you the key that unlocks everything in the story. Um, so I guess, you know, it's in part, like for me, to, the answer to the question, what do I do with that is, well, you know, not, not, not really much. Um, less than I would do with a parallel story. I mean, like, for instance, the fact, just to go back again to the illustration I used in that first podcast, knowing that the, the, the story of Bilbo sneaking into Smaug's lair and stealing a golden cup and leaving thereby, uh, thereby ticking the dragon off and causing him to attack the nearby town, knowing that that story happens in a very similar way in Beowulf, 
dead as a thief sneaks into the dragon's horde, steals a golden cup, and uh, makes the dragon mad. Um, knowing that is interesting, um, and it ge- it does give me an opportunity by doing a close comparison of the two to see the ways in which Tolkien is altering that, and therefore to sort of see some of the ways in which those two stories are sort of working together. Basically, when I have an actual text that I can take and put next to The Hobbit, um, you know, it, it, it provides, I think, some sort of fruitful opportunities for com- for comparison and contrast with something more vague and general, like the knowledge that Tolkien was in some sense and to some extent thinking about the Jewish culture and about the Old Testament when he was writing about dwarves, I feel like it kind of gives me less than the Beowulf parallel. I don't really know exactly what what to do with that profitably. But it is interesting. It is certainly curious. Well, I'll I'll tell you, the other thing that kind of came up in that the book club I'm in is that the, the person who brought that up uh, also brought up some of the more negative aspects of the doors, such as that they're always want money for things like that. And she thought that that was uh, maybe a sign of some prejudice that uh, Tolkien had against doors. And uh, but if you read the, especially one of the letters he wrote in World War II uh, to uh, the German translators of of the Hobbit, or right before yeah. World War II, it's clear that he does not feel that way. And so I think uh, for people who read that Wikipedia article, it should be uh, brought out that uh, what Tolkien is is drawing on this Jewish inspiration or whatever. He's drawing on things like culture and languages and the Old Testament. He's not thinking about stereotypical. No. Yeah. No, I really don't think so. And even with the the business about their relationship uh, with money and with treasure, what we see there is not necessarily just like a general greed or materialism on the part of the dwarves. What we see in the dwarves is the same thing that we see in the Noldor and in Aule and a bunch of other places. They are makers who have a pretty strong tendency to love too well the works of their own hands. Um, when Thorin is you know, squatting on this huge pile of gold and, uh, and refusing to share any of it at the end of the Hobbit, you know, when he gives in to the dragon sickness, first of all, keep in mind he is being, he is in fact still being influenced by the magic of the dragon, even though the dragon is dead. Um, but anyway, the problem there is not, I am really greedy, I like lots of money, and I'm going to keep all the money and not share it. It's not just that. This is his ancestral home. This is his treasure. The treasure which is the treasure of his people and the testimony to all of their works and 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 this is this is and their making and he sees with a certain amount of justice the fact that you've got this hostile army what he views as a hostile army certainly because he is very hostile to the elven king from whose prison he's recently escaped that they're coming and 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 trying to loot his 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 kingdom you know his 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 palace which he has just regained from the dragon who stole it from them um you know his his point of view thorin's point of view is not entirely indefensible um now his actions are not ultimately defensible and he is clearly in the wrong and he is giving into the dragon sickness and all that stuff but but again, this is why, to me, the the relationship between dwarves and gold doesn't sound really at all um, like anti-Semitic 
stereotypes about you know Jews and money and materialism, most of which uh, you know comes in from comes up from uh, the medieval connection between Jews and money lending because the uh, because Christians were not permitted um, by law to be money lenders, and so they made the Jews do it uh, in the Middle Ages. So I think Christians actually compelled Jews to become money lenders, and then that's sort of uh, where, that, that's why you get like Shylock the Jew um, in in Shakespeare's play and his connection with money. Um, but yeah, I mean, thinking about that as a connection, thinking about Shylock the Jew um, in, in the Shakespeare play, which clearly is invoking all of these negative anti-Semitic stereotypes about the relationship between Jews and money, um, you know, Shylock, you know, my daughter and my ducats, my daughter and my ducats, right? The, his talk about money, I just, it seems, it's very different. It's very different from Thorin's and his relationship to his gold. And again, I come back to, it's like, it's the maker thing. It's the sub-creator thing. Um, the dwarves, when the dwarves get to attach to their gold, they get to attach to gold in, uh, you know, they tend to get to attach to gold in the, in the loving too well the work of their own hands, uh, way. Um, you know, not 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 always and not exclusively, but but it has that it has that feel to me much more than uh, than otherwise. I just wanted to say they love gold so much they don't even want to lend it out. So yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and they're not just about making profits; they're not merchants at all. Um, you know, they don't have that kind of uh, that kind of a capitalist spirit. Um, dwarves, uh, Joe, you've wanted to to pitch into this too, I think. All right. Um... Well, this kind of is drawn back towards more towards the story. Uh, I was wondering if you could compare uh, the elves and the dwarves working together on um, on Menegroth to the music of the Ainur and um, how well they worked together to create something beautiful. And, you know, that's before Melkor came and brought too much revenue of your own merch into the mix, which is also kind of comparable to later events between the elves and the dwarves. I just wonder if you could kind of draw that parallel. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good parallel to draw. I mean, I, what we see, and I think the reason that we get another pause in the, uh, you know, pretty swift survey of events that we get in this chapter, but we do get another pause and kind of dilation on the description of Menegroth and how beautiful it is and how remarkable it is, the most fair of all, you know, of all, of, of all palaces, of all dwellings of the elves east of the sea. And, um, and the thing that is most remarkable about it is that it is, it is a collaborative project of the elves and the dwarves, and we don't see that uh, very often. Go ahead. Uh, well, you just touched on something I was going to ask. It says Menegroth is the most fair. Does that include uh, Gondolin? Uh, I was just sure, because I know it's described as also being beautiful. I just, uh, yeah. You had to put one on top. Yeah, well, no, that's, that, that is how I read that. But, I, but I, Joe, that's exactly what I was thinking too. You know, when I was, when I read this chapter through this past time, you know, just this afternoon, I was, I was, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, wait, no, really? Even Gondolin? Uh, because Gondolin is usually held as, uh, you know, it's like the most, the most beautiful, the most precious. Um, but no, no, we're told, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty strong language that he's using right there. The most fair dwelling east of the sea. Um, so yes, apparently, even counting Gondolin, Menegroth was more, was more beautiful. Um, and again, there, see, Gondolin, I don't want to get too much into detail describing it, because we're still quite a ways from Gondolin. But when we see Gondolin, Gondolin will be a pure elvish place. In fact, it will be a pure Noldor place. Um, well, I mean, it's not that there are no Sindar there, because there are going to be a few Sindar who go in with Turgon. But, um, but still, it's 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 a very elvish, a very a very Noldoran place, um, and it is one of the great achievements of Noldor culture in Middle Earth. But um, possibly probably the greatest achievement of Noldor cult- culture in Mi- Middle Earth. But um, 
but Minigroth is fairer. And I think, you know, I mean, I think that, Joe, you touch on something that I think is really compelling there. One of the things that does make it fairer is its collaborative nature. And we do get a glimpse. Remember that those two references that we got earlier on, that is the reference to the second music, the even greater music, when the children of Iluvatar are going to join in the song, and also to the the reference about the distant future and destiny of the dwarves, that they are going to join with Aule and helping to reshape the world at the end of days. Um, so yeah, I think we do get this little sort of glimpse and foretaste. This is just, this is one moment when we can see things coming together and working together in a way which is almost like... Um, which is almost like the, 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 the kind of union, the kind of unity, uh, that will happen eventually and down the road. Um, now, John, you had also wanted to talk about the dwarf Sindar relationship. So since we've already kind of jumped into this, uh, did you want to, did you want to also say something about that? Um, yes, I, I wanted to bring up, normally we see the Sindar um, in the Lord of the Rings not being too keen on inviting the dwarves on uh, councils and other, you know, far more um, friendlier measures. Yeah. Basically, you know, the antagonism we see between the Wood Elves and uh, the dwarves and the Hobbit. I don't know if um, I can draw any parallels here, but I'm, I'm seeing here far more cooperation in the way the, uh, the Sindar are actually treating the dwarves. Um, actually, it seems very mutual. Of course, this breaks up later with the, you know, the whole affair with the uh, the Silmaril. Right. Yeah. Into that now. Right. Right. And, right. And we exactly. Also, no. Of course. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. And then what's also very curious is how Menegroth is described as the Thousand Caves, and you would assume necessarily that that would be predominantly a dwarvish settlement. Yeah, it's populated by elves. Right. Of course, there are dwarves um, trafficking between Belgost and Nagrod into uh, Menegroth, but we get that same kind of almost paradoxical image of actually elves living in caves. We normally see the Sindar living, you know, in the forests, not really in that same location. I might be pushing the envelope here, but it seems to um, hold a different image than what we're probably used to, you know. I mean, we see similarities, as you've said before, between Metagroth and the uh, Elven King's Palace in The Hobbit, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, know, Yeah, yeah. But we see that same connection. I I think we do. No, I totally agree. It's one of those things where, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, But it's one of those things where, you know, I'm pretty sure if you ever made an audio reading of the Silmarillion, I could probably, you know, pick out the enthusiasm in your voice at that time those segments. No, I do hear it. As a visually impaired person, I, I can tell the inflection in the voices where people are actually able to, uh, you know, all of a sudden they've made a connection and they're going on, you know, their 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 own um, extrapolation of events as interpreted just by the tone of their voice. And it's awesome. It, it's, it's a pretty cool thing to latch on to. So yeah, yeah, that's neat. In, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think, you know, we can, uh, there's several, there are several really cool things that I think that we can see, um, in that, you know, in, in your comments there, John. I mean, first, on the one hand, the fact I totally agree with you, Menegroth being, being caves does seem very counterintuitive. You would expect that this sort of, you know, the, the heartland home of the Sindar, uh, of the Sindarin elves, um, you would think that they would be, that it would be a woodland dwelling. It would be something kind of Lothlorien-like, you know, with the the city and the trees. But it's not city in the trees. It's city underground. It's in caves. Um, it it is rather dwarf-like. Although, 
they carve the caves to look like trees. So it's like you get the best of both worlds, uh, in, in, in Menegroth. But again, it's like, it's the, it's, the, it's the collaborative thing. Um, uh, and it certainly is the, the, uh, the, the halls of the Elven King in The Hobbit are, are sort of a, a pretty clear sort of, uh, you know, nod to, to, to Doriath here. This is sort of like, you know, a little mini Menegroth out there, uh, in Mirkwood. Um, but uh but yeah the 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 collaboration between them the relationship between them is uh is very um is is fine though we we don't see they don't love each other um and the sindar and the and the and the naugrim and the dwarves don't get along nearly as well as the dwarves will get along with the noldor because you know they've got the whole like subcreation smithying uh friends with Aule thing going on, you know, so they sort of bond over that. Um, but yeah, we do get that one reference that Tolkien makes in this chapter saying, um, you know, this was of course before the evils that befell afterwards. In other words, this is pre any cause of debate between the elves and the dwarves. So the only thing that separates them at this point is um, the fact that they don't quite see eye to eye and they consider each other a little bit weird and, and the Nalgrim are funny looking um, and their language is cumbrous. Um, uh, Laura, you just asked about the, 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 the Mirkwood. Yes, the Mirkwood are, the, the Mirkwood elves are Nandor by and large. Although Thranduil and therefore Legolas are not. They are Sindar, but most of the Mirkwood elves are in fact Nandor. Um, the, the, the elves of, of Lenway, that is correct. Um, as are most of the Galathrim actually too. Most of the elves that Galadriel and Celeborn rule over. Although Galadriel is Noldor and Celeborn is a Sindar. He's a kinsman of Thingol. Um, as we'll we'll get have that explained to us very briefly later on uh in the Silmarillion. Um so although as although she's Noldor and he's and he's a Sindar, the the most of the elves of Lothlorien are Nandor also. Um almost all of them are. Uh the green elves are a subset of the Nandor. They're the ones who cross over the Blue Mountains and end up in Beleriand. And so they they are called the Green Elves and the rest of them are just the Nandor. It's it is hard to keep track of but anyway yeah uh, they're the ones that are that are that are over there and have been have been over there let's see um what okay let's see dave you wanted to talk about denethor speaking of nandor oh see dave i'm not hearing you here i was actually wait hang on i, I see i'm i'm I, let's see dave let me let me let me come back to you in a second um i, I think I, I was skipping mike anyway mike you wanted to add something to the dwarf discussion um, in the in the in the dwarves elves discussion we were having, I just noticed that in the last chapter, Fingolfin, when he decides to try to tackle the ice, is described as willing to do that because he was not yet weary of the world and he was new come new come from the blessed realm. And in, in this chapter, the dwarves are described as willing to help Thingol and giving their help willingly, for they were unwearied in those days and eager for new works. And that was sort of new to me in that I've always seen the elves described as wearying over time but not so much the dwarves but in that little sentence it seems like maybe they the dwarves and the elves have that in common well yeah i mean everybody's fading um it's sort of more noticeable with the elves because they start bigger and so when they fade and get lesser the difference is very very noticeable um 
But of course, even the humans are. Remember Faramir's speeches about you know the the, the diminishing of uh, of the Numenorians, um, you know from from Elros at the top all the way down through you know the 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 Gondorians of the Third Age, you know he says, look, you know we've we've we we, we can scarcely be called high anymore, um, and this is this is a trend. This is a trend that we see all over the place. So yeah, yeah, the the, the dwarves, the dwarves seem to experience it too. Um, now remember that that reference that you made to to Fingolfin uh, and you know his people still being strong because they've they're fresh come from Amon. There he's alluding. You will recall to that big distinction between the elves that we looked at before. That is the distinction between the Calaquendi and the Moraquendi, the elves of the light and the elves of the darkness. So. Um, uh so that's that's important to keep in mind um because we will see that 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 that'll be something that'll come up that is that is really important um with the elves that have been over there that have been living with the valar that have been in the light of the trees are have been substantively changed and are just sort of head and shoulders uh greater of of greater stature and more powerful uh than the Moraquendi, the elves of the darkness who have stayed over in Middle Earth. Though remember that we're told that the Sindar of Doriath are greater than the rest of the elves. That is the Sindar are greater th- than than the Nandor, and even it seems to some extent the elves of the Phallus, that is the followers of Cirdan the Shipwright, because they're hanging out with Thingol, who is Calaquendi, remember he did see the trees, he, he only visited uh, as one of the ambassadors, but he did go to Valinor and he has seen the trees, even though he didn't make it back. And Melian is there, so you have one of the Meyer living there, and because of Thingol there and because of, of, of Melian there, they kind of elevate the Sindar into this sort of middle category, but they're not... Uh, they're still, they still can't compare with those who still have, you know, the reflection of the light of the trees in their faces. And, uh, they, they're just, they're different when they come back. Um, so that's one thing to remember there. And that will also kind of fade over time. So that's when that's sort of that, that the significance of that reference to their being not yet, not yet weary. They're still, they're still full of, uh, still full of that, that, that power, that force, that light. Um, but yep, yep, the dwarves, the dwarves will also fade. Jack, go ahead. Yeah, you brought up uh, Melian. I just had a quick question. Um, what is her relationship to Valinor? Because in this chapter, when they're uh, decorating the caves, she uh, they're putting out tapestries and and uh, etchings or whatever of uh, scenes in Valinor and of, of the gods, etc. And I don't remember her actually being there or what her connection to Valinor was. Yeah, she we, we we get a reference to her in at the at the end of the Valaquenta. Um she is she was hanging out in Lorien, um and we're told of her uh, you know, even by sort of Maiar standards of of her her very great beauty. Um uh let's see. Melian was here I just found it, it's on page thirty. Melian was the name of a Maya who served both Vana and Este. She dwelt long in Lorien, tending the trees that flower in the gardens of Irmo ere she came to Middle earth. Nightingales sang about her wherever she went. Um uh anyway, so um she is she she's associated with uh with Lorien, she's associated with, with nightingales and with song. Uh and remember we're told in the in the the uh, uh, the very short of Thingol and Melian chapter um that uh uh that 
she, her her song was uh was was particularly striking and important um that that she was a, a wonderful singer but we see she is she is very powerful and she is able to um you know she has a very strong influence it's you know it's it is it is very interesting you know throughout this section even though we're reminded in that wonderful paragraph that mike pointed out earlier that orame still occasionally will ride through and and do his hunting of monsters thing over in middle earth yet still by and large the valar are not going to be a very great presence um you know morgoth is going to be the primary uh you know sort of Ainu influence over there in Middle Earth, he and his followers, and against him there's Melian. You know, she there there she is, and she is she's not aggressive. You know, her her actions are almost purely defensive, uh, and not offensive. But she is going to be a very potent force in the uh, for for the enemies of um, of Morgoth. Uh, so she's she's a big deal. Um, but uh yeah i mean chris is uh, as you just pointed out in the text um yeah she 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 could contend with ungoliant i mean ungoliant could not get into doriath when uh when when she wanted to because melian manages to keep her out so i mean that's uh um yeah yeah she's she's uh her the girdle of melian you know this this uh the, the which is the ultimate expression of melian's power the the primary thing that we see her doing is just this 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 protective well, I was about to call it a wall. It's not exactly a wall. It's not like it's a physical barrier. It's just purely a, a magical barrier, a spiritual barrier that she puts around, uh, around Doriath and, and keeps out all evil things for a long, long time. Um, even while things are, things are going bad everywhere else. Um, let's see. We don't have too much time left here tonight. So I want to, there are two other, um, two other topics that you guys mention that I want to get to uh, here. Uh, actually, since we're already talking about uh, Melian, Elizabeth, why don't you, you wanted to talk about her foresight? I did. Um, I thought it was really interesting that uh, she, it mentions that she, she had so much foresight that she um, was able to uh, note that around the end of the, the second age of the captivity of Melkor, she saw that the piece of Arda was going to pass, and I thought it was interesting that she was able to see that where even Manwe and the other Valar were not able to see that. And uh, it just kind of speaks to her level of power. Yeah, you know, that 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 is a really, uh, that's a really neat observation. You kind of think like, you know, couldn't she sent a sent a memo over to Manway or something, you know, she saw that coming miles away and he was uh, apparently taken in. Um, yeah, that, that's a, that's a fantastic observation. One of the things that I would add to it, or one of the, one of the ways I would put it, I think it's not necessarily to see by this, that her foresight and her wisdom are therefore just much greater than Manway's, but rather they're sort of different and in a sense, sort of more focused. She has, by coming over to Middle-earth and staying there and marrying Thingol, she has settled down here. She now, this is, this is her domain. The, the, the girdle, the, the, the protection that she puts out is just sort of the external, um, expression of this fact. And so, you know, it sort of seems to me that her foresight here is able to kind of be as as keen as it is because she has she has sort of foresight about what's going to happen here in her region you know in in her neighborhood and in, in this adoptive land of hers 
the, what she has the foresight of is not what's going to happen exactly. She doesn't necessarily know like, oh, Melkor is going to be released and then he's going to betray everybody and the Noldor are going to come back. She doesn't know those things. Um, in fact, when the Noldor come back, we will find she, Melian, is ignorant of what they did and doesn't know. So, so again, it's not that her understanding and her perception is, is, is qualitatively greater uh, than Manway's, but what she does have a sense of is, okay, here here in Doriath, here in Middle-earth, here in Beleriand, things are going to get dangerous. Um, we need to be prepared because evil is coming. Um, so, uh, so I, I think it's sort of more sort of focused and specific in that way, but I agree. It is, uh, it, it is interesting to remember the, the, the lack of insight into that, um, that, that Manway shows, uh, over there. That's, uh, that is a really, a really neat point. Um, one thing that I wanted to bring up about this, one thing that I was, uh, that I was struck by is the making of weapons by the Sindar. Remember, we, we made a big deal of the making of weapons when the Noldor started foraging weapons over in Valinor. Um, you know, that this was a really, really bad sign. Um, and one of the, one of the first very clear evidences of, Subcreation going bad with them, that they're taking their artistic gifts, that they're taking, uh, they're taking their craft, their powers of craftsmanship, and they're using them to make, uh, to make weapons designed to harm people. Um, and, you know, sort of how significant that is and how, and, and how bad that is. Now here we see the Sindar also making weapons. But I think that this actually is something which really, in my mind anyway, highlights how significant was, how significantly bad was the forging of weapons by the Noldor. Because there seems to me all the difference in the world between saying, okay, we have no weapons, um, but wait, Melian has this strong foresight that evil is coming and we need to be prepared against evil. We need to fight against evil. We know that there are these monsters wandering around. We know that orcs exist. Um, and and we have the sense that dark times are coming, so we need to be prepared to fight against the evil when it comes. So let's make weapons, and let's have the dwarves help us make weapons. There's a big difference between that and the Noldor in the peace of Valinor, not being threatened, uh, having th- there being you know really no danger that they can see or that they that they anticipate. When we think of Feanor, where he uses the first time a weapon is drawn, the first time a weapon is used is when he draws it against Fingolfin. Um, not entirely unprovoked, not from his perspective, but, um, but, but anyway, where he is creating a disturbance, where he is himself breaking the peace with, with that weapon, which he has, uh, which he has forged. And it's, so like it's suspicion and paranoia and pride and the division, you know, the breaking of unity, all of those things are both what lead to the forging of weapons and are sort of amplified by the forging of weapons. So I think we can really see, um, I think that we can really see the, uh, the, the difference between, between those there. But I was just sort of thinking back to that previous discussion. And so I was, I was kind of interested in the forging of weapons by the Sindar there. Um, Joe, you wanted to talk about Luthi, and I think it's probably the, the last thing we're going to have time for, uh, in our regular discussion tonight. Um, you wanted to ask your, your, or make your Luthian comment, Joe? Yeah, I just found it interesting. I think it says, uh, the, the first, uh, the flowers bloom at Luthien's birth. I was wondering if that sort of like symbolized how powerful she was or she would be, since they were the first flowers that kind of came without the help of the sun or the moon. Well, on Middle-earth, because I think some bloomed from the trees in Valinor. I'm not really sure how that worked. But uh, I was just wondering if that could sort of symbolize how great she's going to be, how she brought about something. I don't know if she really brought it about, but 
it just kind of symbolized something so beautiful there. I just wondered if there could be a connection or if it was just a connection with her beauty, maybe. Well, I mean, I think that there is. Um, and I think that this gets back to the theme that we've been tracing now for several chapters. Um, if you re- if we read this paragraph, it's on page 91. It's the first paragraph of the chapter. Um, you know, we have, uh, let's see, when all the earth had peace and the glory of Valinor was at its noon, there came into the world Luthien, the only child of Thingol and Melian. Though Middle-earth lay for the most part in the sleep of Yavanna, in Beleriand under the power of Melian there was life and joy, and the bright stars shone as silver fires, and there in the forest of Neldoreth Luthien was born, and the white flowers of Nifredil came forth to meet her as stars from the earth. Um, and the thing that I am reminded of here is the fact that... Um, Remember, with the separation of the elves, you know, Olmo's argument for keeping the elf, for leaving the elves in Middle Earth is they can do good there. They can go around and help to heal the hurts that Morgoth has made. They can bring beauty and life and joy to Middle Earth and, and bless it. Um, and if we take them all to Valinor, then we're going to keep all of that to ourselves and Middle Earth will be neglected. And here we see two things. One, Melian, who is the only one of the Ainur, it seems, who, or at least that we're told about, who has gone in the opposite direction of the rest of the, of, of, of the Valar and the Maiar, and she has moved over, um, to Middle-earth. Um, and where she is, she is blessing Middle-earth, and in Doriath, um, where she is, there is light. There, there, there is life and joy. Um, but also Luthien, her child, um, the, you know, this way, this, this sort of most direct way in which Melian is blessing Middle Earth, uh, by bearing to an elf, uh, you know, an elf child and not only any elf child, but like the elf child. I mean, even the way that, the way that Luthien's birth is described, you know, there came into the world Luthien. Um, you can tell she's important already just from the way that that is, uh, that that is, that that is introduced. Um, but the, 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 that image of the flowers, this new kind of flower springing up, um, around Luthien, um, at her birth is, is, uh, is, is just, phenomenal um and again a, a testimony to see look this is the kind of influence that elves can have in middle earth the rest of it is in the sleep of yavanna R- remember that when when light failed in middle earth yavanna went around putting things to sleep so that they wouldn't die in the darkness um so middle earth most of middle earth is literally dormant i mean it's 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 on hold and and the valar aren't doing much with it Except the place, the, you know, these places where we see the elves active, uh, and, you know, people like Luthien, just by existing, are causing it to wake up and causing new beauty, and not just artifacts, but new natural beauty to spring forth just by being there. Um, now, you know, Luthien is unusual, but still, I think that there we do get a kind of glimpse of what could have been, in a sense. Joe, go ahead. Yeah, it just seems, uh, if the other, um, Einor would have humbled themselves, sort of like Melian did. Um, it just uh, would have brought about a lot more greater good, and Melkor's evils would have been lessened, at least. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that that was, that seems to have been the plan. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's, that's a pretty strong piece of evidence. A, a pretty strong piece of evidence for that, and that paragraph is uh, is is really evocative. Of course, we're going to come back to Luthien a good deal later on, um, but uh, 
and it will be interesting to sort of remember back to the significance of her and what she what she sort of stands for or rather what she uh what she represents as this image of like what could be and in a sense what could have been um with the more perfect collaboration of the valar and the uh, and the eldar in the blessing of middle earth okay i think uh that will probably wrap it up for the night tonight Thanks for listening, and farewell, Tolkien fans, wherever you fare, till your Aries receive you at the journey's end.